0: Both of our scriptures today come from uh, the lectionary for this Sunday, the readings that are shared by many churches around this the world on this particular Sunday, uh, and our sermon series for Lent, uh, using the lectionary scriptures from the, the gospel readings in particular, is called Walking with Jesus, because it turns out each of these scriptures we read from uh, the gospel has Jesus on the move, walking, sometimes alone, sometimes with others, but walking, moving, and so we join him. It's Lenten season, walking together. Our reading today comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, the themes of which we have just sung together. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given to me, and I will give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord, your God, and serve him only. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My freshman year of high school, I attended a fall youth group weekend at a local campground. And on the first evening after dinner, we all gathered in the main hall to sing songs of worship. And at the end of one of those songs, an upperclassman, one of the student leaders, she turned around, she looked me in the eye, and she said, you have a good voice. No one had ever told me I had a good voice or a bad voice or any voice. I was extremely shy. I'm confident I said nothing. But I did sing all the more fully on the next song. <laughs> because what I heard in those words weren't just, you have a good voice, but you have a voice. You belong. Now my faith in Jesus was still young at that point, still finding its its legs, but that night, really, that season of life uh, was one wonderfully alive with a love for God, love for God's people and God's work in the world, and studying the Bible and learning, and all, all born of that most sacred space of simply knowing I have a voice. I belong. Where do you point to in your own lives for seasons uh, or a season where, where your faith in Jesus was particularly alive, invigorated? Maybe an early season, right? But, but where a space where your sense of, of belonging was so deep and, and so your gifts and your voice, they played forth all the more fully. Where do you point to? And do you remember any of the the songs or hymns or scriptures or promises that were central to that season? In Luke chapter 3, so a chapter before what I just read, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, and, and up out of the water, God speaks, you are my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. It was this joyous moment of grace, of belonging. Jesus has yet to do a thing in his ministry, and yet God is, is saying, first things first, you belong, you are loved. It is always jarring then to discover that, that we be, what begins so strong, so good, so full of grace, inevitably, unavoidably, at some point, is followed by wilderness or wildernesses. Luke has arranged his material quite purposely in the gospel so that right after the baptism of Jesus in chapter 3, this moment full of grace, you are my beloved, comes chapter 4. Then Jesus left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. The Spirit who fills with this invigorating grace makes that faith come alive now leading into the wilderness. The wilderness, as many of you know, it's a a space in the Bible that's dry and arid, doesn't have a lot of food or water, largely uninhabited. It's got the word wild at the root of wilderness because it's recognized to be a space fundamentally outside of any control of humans. And 40 days, right? in, in, In the Bible, that's a significant number. It's a way of saying a long time. 40 days, it comes in all forms and fashions, right? It may be seasons of relational strife, dark nights of the soul, vocational confusion, grief, congregational searching and aching, pandemics, goodness, pandemics, war. Or sets off an immediate wilderness for millions. Nobody ever chooses the wilderness. Often it, it just comes for any number of reasons. Sometimes, as in our passage, the Holy Spirit leads us there. Why, God, why cannot we uh, stay on those evenings that are fo- so full of song and life And the Spirit so good and vitalizing. Why why is it there always seems to be this move from the water to the desert? From flourishing to drought? From Luke chapter 3 to Luke chapter 4? We cannot answer that question satisfactorily in many regards, I think, this side of heaven. But if we could briefly walk these three temptations Jesus faces, I think we can see something of... Wilderness's purpose, perhaps even gift. The devil says to Jesus, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. You're hungry. You have the power of God. Take control. Fix the problem. And what would be so wrong with a quick fix for the hunger and the pain? A few years back, I was part of this group in Richmond, Virginia, doing this study around healthy food. Um, and and access to healthy food in in that city. In particular, we were focused on what sometimes are called food deserts. These areas of the city that had no grocery stores for miles. If you wanted food, it was was the convenience stores. So one day we're in one of these food desert areas standing in front of this large urban garden. Fresh food. But it's overgrown with weeds. It's noticeably under-tended. I learned that what happens is sometimes when well-meaning people start to learn about this food discrepancy, they'll show up from their neighborhood over here and come to this neighborhood without the grocery store, and they say, here's a garden. We're going to build you, and they build it, and it's sizable, and it's it's diverse, and it's really, it's quite nicely done. And then a year later, the whole thing's dead, unkept, and nothing has changed on the food front. Actually, if anything, the residents that now have this garden kind of resent the people that build it Why? They tried to turn a hard issue into bread. The quick fix is actually a lie. The quick fix is, is one person or group of people taking control of a hard issue and saying, money, resources, done. But the real truth is, to talk about healthy food and healthy food access is really... Then to begin a conversation about transportation, jobs, housing, education, race, cultural differences to and around food. The way to address food is to consider all of these layers in a longer term relationship building, trust building strategy empowered by everyone in the community. That kind of work, those kind of relationships, oh, that's only fed on the nourishment Of a soul sustaining bread of another kind. And so, to the quick fix lie, Jesus responds with concise clarity It is written, one does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, as the full verse in Deuteronomy has it where Jesus is quoting from. So then you heard the devil takes him to a high place and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. These you can have, all authority, all the kingdoms. They're yours if you worship me. And isn't isn't one of the worst parts about being in any measure of wilderness the sense uh, of lack of control? I mean, what if you could just take the problem, the angst, the doubt, the relationship, The injustice, the diagnosis, the career. I mean, what if you could just bend it, straighten it, make it right? What if you could just get more control over the situation? Those of you who have raised a teenager, those of you who were once a teenager, how well does it work to make a teenager do what they need to do. I vividly recall three years ago when I first learned that there's such a thing as a three-nager. I would tell Leo, it's time for bed. And that was the first time, that age, where, where he just outright began refusing. Now, there are options at this point, but the easiest one, quite frankly, is to walk up to him, pick him up, and say, Leo, it's time for bed, and carry him there. Well, he didn't like that, though I could physically carry him. He quickly learned he could kick, he could hit, he could scream, and then once put into the bed, he could get right back out of the bed, and we'll start back over. There was a sense then and now that I regularly feel I am in the wilderness of parenting, and the common denominator remains this. Every time I try and control the outcomes with things like carrying him where he needs to be, where the situation needs to go, the more he resists. And it's not only true in parenting, right? It's true in marriage, it's true in politics. It's true in church. It's true in life. The more we seek to control and engineer and tighten our will upon someone or something, the more the control is resisted. As Jesus says elsewhere, those who seek to save their life, control their life, oh, they'll lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake, they will find it. It's no wonder Jesus in this particular moment with the devil, says again with rather concise clarity, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worshiping and serving are fundamentally about loosening one's grip, letting oneself be led by God, putting one's life in the hands of God. Finally, the devil takes Jesus to the top of the temple in Jerusalem, a very public, visible area says, throw yourself down. The scriptures say the angels will take care of you. They'll catch you. You'll be fine. Henry Nouwen, he, he comments on this portion of the passage. He says, you know, the third temptation to which Jesus is exposed was the temptation to do something spectacular. Something that could win him great applause. Something to prove himself. Sometimes it does seem like the quickest way out of the wilderness for the church is to do a huge event. Bring in a big old speaker with, with, with great fireworks and a band or, or, or get the press in on this and let's tell everyone how great the things are that the church is doing or the quickest way out of the wilderness for a marriage is, is that spectacular, over-the-top gift. The quickest way out of our inner wilderness is just to do a great thing, a big thing, even a public thing that validates us in the eyes of others and surely God will show up and command God's angels and bless this great thing. It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't think you can manipulate God to show up and carry you out of the wilderness on your own spectacular timing. The third temptation is not so different from the first in that both are kind of a a quick fix. The third temptation being particularly grand. The wilderness is chock full of seemingly wonderful lies. It be a truth be told, who among us, when walking in the wilderness and feeling the depth of that dryness and pain and hurt and confusion, who of us has not grasped for a quick quick fix or quick escape or more control? Or some kind of immediate validation, if it seems like it might get us out of the wilderness, or at least a reprieve. And yet here's the strange mystery of the wilderness. Even the gift of the wilderness that Jesus reveals as he remains in it. Did you notice how he responds to each temptation? He not only responds with scripture, he responds with very specific, concise, clear Verses from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, if you know it, is a book in the Hebrew scriptures written in a very repetitive, simple, clear form so that children could easily learn and memorize the Jewish faith. Families were commanded, Deuteronomy chapter 6, to, to talk about the Torah day and night, coming and going, uh, to, to, to tie them on their hands and the forehead, the, the law, to, to write the law over the door frames of their houses. Children were to be immersed in in Deuteronomy from an early age. It was their first taste of of the living faith. Taste being quite literal, because the common practice for Torah teaching included the father of the family giving their children a taste of honey on their lips after reading the Torah, so that children would know in their very body the sweetness and goodness of God's word. When Jesus is in the wilderness, he is quoting the concise, sweet-tasting, simple scriptures of his youth. One shall not live on bread alone. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. The thing about the wilderness is you run out of options. You hit hit your end as an individual or as a people, as a family, as a relationship. And by the grace of God, those old hymns, those old songs, those old scriptures and promises that first sweetened your heart many, many years ago. When you first came to know Jesus. Those are the ones that start to sing again from the soul. Because the foundation is all that's left. We once received the beautiful gift of grace earlier in life. The wilderness is showing us how to live by that grace. Those songs, those scriptures, those promises, though now home through the trials, they, they sing with a new depth, a new gravitas, a new quality of love. Mary Oliver, the poet, once wrote, Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. Took me years to understand that this too was a gift. Is it possible the wilderness is a gift? I'm not saying the wilderness is, is always right at all. In fact, some wildernesses are awful and it's it's a pure evil. that that any would have to walk it. All I'm asking, all Mary Oliver is inviting, all Jesus is revealing is this. Is it possible that it's the wilderness, the wilderness of all places, that might be the place where we taste that sweet grace again? Is it an accident that Jesus goes from the waters of baptism in Luke chapter 3 to you belong, you are beloved, to chapter 4, the wilderness. And then the very next thing he does, chapter 5, is step out into his very public ministry and declares with striking clarity, striking conviction, his purpose. Listen, listen, Luke chapter 5. This is where Jesus goes. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to declare the year of the Lord's favor. Goodness, out of the wilderness, he comes forth with a voice, a holy fire of clarity and purpose that cannot be stopped. Imagine that. It's highly doubtful any of us can walk our wilderness days without succumbing at some level to the very real tempting lies that grow there. But we can walk in confidence that Jesus has conquered the power of those lies. We can trust in the wilderness. His spirit abides within us and sustains us more than we realize. And so I do believe we can walk with confidence that with Jesus, the wilderness season will be one wherein Jesus will yet sing those old songs through us again. Perhaps in a key, in a context unimaginable to some of us right now. Because at the heart of our faith, we maintain that even in the bleakest of possible wildernesses, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even there, especially there, definitely there. That is precisely the space through which a new birth beyond our imagination is already at work. Amen.